Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary, and not guaranteed. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. The reality is that plants do all the same things we do. You know, they grow, they get sick, they heal from sickness, they have offspring, they reproduce, they store against future bad times. They do all the things we do. They, they just do them very differently than we do. We're kind of stuck in a different world from them. And so a big part of studying plants well is spending a lot of time imagining That's Hope Jaron, and boy, is she good at imagining. In her book, Lab Girl, she takes us on a dive so deep into the lives of plants that they come alive in our imaginations, more like fellow creatures than just things that grow. And meanwhile, she weaves in her own personal story of a life in science. She does this so vividly that we can feel what it's like not only to be a plant, but to be the scientist who studies that plant. Hope is a professor now at the University of Oslo. So I was especially delighted that during a trip to New York, she had time before catching a Yankees game to join me in our Manhattan studio. Hope, this is such a treat for me to talk to you because I think you're such an extraordinary writer. I, you, you light up the brain with the way you write. You have this wonderful way of telling your own story so vividly and so emotionally and telling the story of your science with the same voice, same personal tone. Instead of talking about it, would you read that section we put in front of you? Yeah. No risk is more terrifying than that taken by the first root. A lucky root will eventually find water, but its first job is to anchor, to anchor an embryo and forever end its mobile phase. However passive that mobility was, Once the first root is extended, the plant will never again enjoy any hope, however feeble, of relocating to a place less cold, less dry, less dangerous. Indeed, it will face frost, drought, and greedy jaws without any possibility of flight. The tiny rootlet has only one chance to guess what the future years, decades, even centuries will bring to the patch of soil where it sits. It assesses the light and humidity of the moment, refers to its programming, and quite literally takes the plunge. It's so interesting. When I first read that, I thought, gee, this is anthropomorphizing science, anthropomorphizing a plant. Is that is that good to do? And then I realized 
you were giving me the chance by talking about it in human terms of what it must be like in a way I can understand what it must be like to be a plant. Right. And, and, and you're giving me a chance to have empathy for a plant, which yeah. I've, I've never thought I could have. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that come into play there, and that's that the reality is that plants do all the same things we do. They just do it using very different um, tools and for very different reasons. You know, they grow, they get sick, they heal from sickness, they die, they have offspring, they reproduce, and they store against future bad times. They do all the things we do. They they just do them very differently than we do. We're kind of stuck in a different world from them. And so a big part of studying plants well is spending a lot of time imagining imagining why they're doing what they do, you know, because plants don't <laughs> you know, wheat plants don't have a big old seed because they dutifully want to, you know, feed America or something. They have yeah. a seed. <laughs> you, you know, plants build seeds for their own reason. And and the way I talk about it, it, you know, it makes me smile to hear you say that because science communication is is all about sharing. Uh-huh. You know, it's actually very simple. And and when you're sharing something that you think is valuable or or something that you have has given you great joy. Uh, if if you feel like this is, you know, I've lived for a while and this is what I really have to share, um, you will find the best words you can to talk about it. And and that's what I always think is that science communication should be focused on on sharing. You know, if the quality of sharing is really, really high, then, you know, good things can't help but come from that. It's a little like the way a, a couple or a parent and a child will say to one another, wow, look at that sun over there. Look at the way the sun is setting tonight. Or look at the beams coming through the clouds. To notice something that feels extraordinary and to share it with the other person, that's the first step. I mean, and you really notice. I mean, the the description you gave of standing in a field of corn and hearing the corn grow. Yeah. That's, I would call that noticing at a high level. Yeah. What do you hear? What are you listening to when you hear corn grow? Right. So um, as plants grow, they basically grow by adding water to certain tissues. So they don't have muscles like we do. They don't move. They move, but they don't, they don't do it the same way we do. What they do is they, they soak up water and their tissues expand and they add cells and the cells that are already there shift. And, and you know that corn is made of these, um, uh, the husks, you know, this kind of um, when it dries, it's really papery, and this kind of a a wad of these things up the stem. And so, when corn is growing, those are all shifting back and forth. You know, it's like paper rustling together. And when corn is growing fast, and in the Midwest in July, you're getting about some days you're getting about an inch or an inch or two a day mm-hmm. that it's adding in height. And so, on a on a still day with no wind, and you're in a cornfield. That goes for acres in every direction. You can hear the rustling, and that's the that's plants growing around idea. you. <laughs> I, there used to be a cornfield near where we lived in the country, and when we passed by it, my grandchildren were at that time uh, sprouting themselves. But we'd stop the car, and they'd get out, and they'd stand next to a stalk of corn that they had measured themselves yeah. against a day or two before, and the stalk was now so much more 
Yeah. It's so much taller compared to them. Yeah. And it was an exciting experience. If I'd only known then we could stand in the field and listen to the corn growing, we would have done that. Well, it's it's um it's a special experience and maybe maybe somebody listening today will find time to to go and try that and let me know how it feels. <laughs> In her book, Lab Girl, Hope Jaron describes how, as a young Ph.D. student, she became fascinated, as a curious scientist will, by something that to the rest of us might seem ordinary. What caught her curiosity was the rock-hard berry made by a tree that's common in the Midwest called the hackenberry. She wondered what it was that made the berries so hard. And working alone at night in a borrowed laboratory, she discovered to her astonishment that the berries contained tiny crystals of the mineral opal. When you found out that opal was in the seed, was that something that other people knew? <laughs> there were a lot of people who told me that's what they would have guessed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that you, that makes perfect sense to them, et cetera. Right. My, older, my older colleagues, of course. But you said, actually made a discovery. Though. I was the one who, you know, put in the hours and stayed up all night and got the data that said for sure that was what was there. So what did that <laughs> feel like when you made a discovery that pretty much you were the only one on Earth who— had the data that showed that that was true. Well, it was a strange night. You know, it was in the middle of the night because it required some instrumentation that had to be shared, and that's when I could get it. And and this was before cell phones and before the internet. And and so you. So I remember it happening in the middle of the night and having to wait until an appropriate time to call somebody and say. Oh, guess what? It worked. This is what I found, you know. And and how? And I remember standing in the lab and watching the sun come up, and realizing that you know, until I told somebody, this was my this was my secret that this was something the universe had given just to me, and that these hours were going to be hours that I held this in my hand. And you know, that wasn't a cure for cancer or something, right? It was a little piece of information, but I just. And I just felt, well, if I'm worthy of a small uh, gift like that, maybe someday I'll be worthy of a big one. And I just remember it was such a beautiful, lonely moment. Why was it lonely? Well, I was alone, and I was, you know, for better or worse, I, I really believed I was the only person on Earth who knew this little thing, and that's... And that's, it's a lonely place to be. And science can be a very lonely place to be. I also knew that the vast majority of folks that I explained it to would see it as maybe boring or, or esoteric or, or nerdy or, you know, all this kind of stuff you worry about when you're 20. So how, how yeah. <laughs> 24. <laughs> uh, 24 to discover something knew about nature is very nice. It, it, it was one of the great moments of my life. I could go on and on about how good that feels. Well, it, it must feel wonderful because it's, you're, you're sharing a passion, and that's, that's a valuable thing. What is the opal doing in the seed? What benefit does the seed have by having 
this opal thing in it? Is it is it helping strengthen it while it waits until it's till it's ready to sprout or what? Well, it's probably a whole range of things. It, pr- it probably helps it not break when it falls from great height. Mm. Um, it's probably hard to chew, so a squirrel probably gets to know that and picks something else. Um, it is very cheap to do. So the atoms that come in for that opal are stuff the plant can't use anyway. And it comes in from the soil. You got to do something of it. So it might be kind of a garbage dump in a way. Um, I, I've been asking a lot of trees that. And so far, they haven't given me a verbal answer. But these are the <laughs> things. I, I think the, the neat thing is that the answer is always more than one thing. It's sort of like, why do you why did you wear that shirt today? Well, it's my favorite shirt, and my wife really likes it, and all my other shirts were dirty. And, you know, why is always a question that has more than one answer. Well, okay. Now, my curiosity just propels me further. Sure. If the, if the squirrel's tooth can't get into the yeah. nut, into the seed, yeah. how can a root get out? Right. So most seeds have kind of a magic sesame formula associated oh, with... Oh, like it opens the door for mm-hmm. it. So oh. most seeds... A seed is a funny thing because, of course, you want to get out of it. I mean, a tree's not going to... In order to be a tree, you got to get out of this little thing, right? <laughs> yes. Sooner or later. But you also want it to be a package that can sit there for days, weeks, months, right? Because you want to wait for the right time to come out. And so a lot of tr- seeds have a special trigger. Um, some seeds need a fire to come through. Some seeds need um, the rainy season to start or the sunny season to start. Mm. Um, and so it's almost like all seeds are waiting for something slightly different. And then they jump in the pool and hope that hope that that trigger was was a good signal, you know. So there's risk. You know, most seeds, can you imagine what the world would be like if every single seed took root? Well, the, the, <laughs> the, the odds are so much in favor of yeah. no seed getting anywhere a root because yeah. well you I think you said it's a million a million to one or more than that. Yeah. And so and so um you know, what if you put out, I mean, humans do reproduction very differently, right? But an elm tree puts out a couple hundred thousand seeds a year. And in order to claim that space for elmdom over the long haul, you need one of them to succeed every, what, 50 years, mm. right? And so that the statistics are just are just mind-bending. But to sit in that place year after year, make 100,000 seeds in the, in the expectation that one of them over the decades will take root and grow up to be a tree, I always think, what, you know, what purer, more accurate definition of hope could you possibly come up with? <laughs> you know, well, why, why, that... How could it possibly be wrong to say that that tree is hoping for something? The only you you stunned me with that because the only I can't imagine how I could think of a a tree helping. But then I think in the same paragraph or the next paragraph, as I remember from from the one you just read, you talk about once the roots start to occur under the ground. They're in communication with roots from nearby trees. Am I right about that? Right, right. So what's all that? Right. So so plants have ways of of giving information to other plants. And and this is part of the 
the weird thing about scientific communication is, is you know, the, the right way to say that would be, you know, rootlets excrete hormones that are picked up by other rootlets and the jasmonic acid is transported between, you know, <laughs> and that's the that's right great. way. That's yeah. the, well, that's, that's oh, the know, science language. That's the right but way. But most of us humans don't know that language. We haven't learned it. Yeah, so that's, I, the, I that's was, not anthropomorphic. Good, 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 good. But the problem is nobody understands what the heck you're saying if you right. do it that way. So, so, so let's use bad, 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 bad language. So the root reaches out and sends a signal to the root over who hears it and moves it through its tissues, you know. And now I've used all these bad, 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 bad words. So send, hear, move, those are things that plants don't do. That's anthropomorphic, da, 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 da. Right. But in order to really talk to you, I've got to use the words we share, if I do it as accurately as I possibly can, but I only use words that we share. That was one of the rules I gave myself when I wrote the book, is I'm not going to use any word in there that you have to look up. Mm. And um, do you make something special if you take that rule to heart? Um, it was it was one of the great joys of my life to try. So you got interested in the opal and the seed, and then what? So our idea was that, um, you know, the the plant comes and goes, but the seed lives a long time. You know, you could find these things in American Indian um, digs from, you know, 10,000 years ago. So what we were hoping was that the something about the chemistry of the opal would record something about the environment of the time it was made. You know, was it cold? Was it hot? Was it, you know, because trees are sensitive to the environment. So we wanted to do, and it would be great to find out if if American Indians moved around because they were um, after a food source that was moving or if they were responding to changes in climate or something else. Um, so the idea was to measure the opal in all these existing trees and compare it to what we knew was the existing weather. I set up this great experiment, had all these trees, drove around Colorado, and the grand finale was going to be the sampling. Well, none of the trees at or near my sites made fruit that year. None of them. (laughs) (laughs) And it was impossible to figure out why. You know, when I talked to local farmers and ranchers, they said, oh, yeah, that sometimes happens. And, it, 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 I mean, there are there are reasons why it does happen, but they are mysterious, right? And it just, that summer, it became so clear to me that, you know, these trees weren't going to put out this fruit so that I could finish my thesis, you know, <laughs> in order to in order to faithfully record climate conditions for future paleoclimatologists. They were doing this for their own reasons. You know, this was their fruit. This was their chance to make another tree. This was their chance to go forward another year. So you were curious about why they didn't produce fruit that year. Well, it was a big deal that they didn't. And the more I thought about why, the more I realized that I would never understand the answer until I started thinking about what they wanted. What were they trying to do when they made a seed? What, so this idea of thinking about them yeah. from their point of view was really what got you into the whole field. Yeah, it's You fun. automatically thought about it from their point of view. Well, I realized that the only way I was going to get anywhere, the only way I was really going to figure out why those seeds didn't happen was by taking that approach. 
by thinking about what were those plants trying to do? What is their agenda? Uh, how do they see the world? And it, it, was, it was fun, and it turned out to be scientifically the right thing to do. Hope Jaron's determination to pursue her own path has served her well. And so has being a female scientist. She believes it's given her what she calls in her book a delicious freedom to make it up as she goes along. She explains what she means by that after this short break. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Hope Jarrett. You seem to to have an interesting relationship with rules. You don't. You uh, <laughs> you, uh, you you know they exist, yeah. but you don't always conform to them. If you don't, if it doesn't get you what you, doesn't get the work done <laughs> that you want to get done. You know what I'm thinking of. Yeah. This. I, well, can I ask you to read one more thing? Of I, course. You. What do you? This really interested me. Okay. I have been admonished for being too feminine, and I have been distrusted for being too masculine. I have been warned that I am far too sensitive, and I have been accused of being heartlessly callous. But I was told all of these things by people who can't understand the present or see the future any better than I can. Such recurrent pronouncements have forced me to accept that because I am a female scientist, nobody knows what the hell I am. And it has given me the delicious freedom to make it up as I go along. You kind of uh, had your own take on the rule of stereotypes. about, And people had opposing stereotypes of you, which I suppose happens to a lot of people. But it seems to happen an awful lot to women in science. You can't, you can't be authoritative without being a bitch. And you can't... <laughs> You can't be accommodating without being a pushover and, and know nothing. How, how do you? How have you handled that? Well, I think there. You know, as a woman in the world, there's always kind of efforts to police your behavior in all kinds of different situations. I, I, um, I think. 
being different was liberating in a way. I, I knew that, you know, no matter how much science I did, no matter how many discoveries I made, I was never going to be the guy walking across campus with the beard and the pipe and the elbow patches that everybody would say, oh, there goes the professor, right? <laughs> so, you know, I was never going to have that reward. So I had to think very carefully about what, what why am I doing this? What do I want to get out of this? What, what is it all about? What is it for? And and answering those questions for myself and to myself was, was something I wouldn't trade for anything. I remember talking with Joe Handelsman, who uh, did a study where she sent out resumes to labs as though they were applying for a job. Yeah. The resumes were identical. Yeah. But the names on the resumes, half of them were male and half were female. Yeah. Those that had the male names got offered more jobs for more money. Yeah. And even when asked, do you think this person is serious about science, on the basis of the same resume, they said the women were less serious about science in their opinion. Yeah. So did you did you experience that kind of barrier? Um, sure. Um, but you, people are wrong. People say things and decide things, and they're not always right. You know, I mean, uh, I think I think there were a lot of folks who underestimated me. I knew they were underestimating me at the time, and all these people telling me how to be a science or telling telling me not my science wasn't worth anything. They didn't go back to the basement and get to work with their best friend all night. You know, mm-hmm. so I always felt like I had. You know, it didn't matter what they told me. I was having the last laugh just because there was so, I was getting so much joy out of it. And I didn't listen to what they said. I just focused. I was just so terrified it would all end. That was the only effect it had on me. Um, I was just so terrified that somehow this negativity actually meant that someday we'd lose the keys and we couldn't come in and do it. The idea that someone would say, your exploration into how nature works wouldn't be worth something is odd to me because— Oh, that's great. I would die for somebody to say it that nicely and that, and that, <laughs> and, and with that much, like, thought to it and, you know, all, like, no profanity and no <laughs> slurs and stuff. That's, that's music to my ears, really. Wow. What's next on your agenda with plants? What are you thinking about now? Well, I've, I've, you know, when I wrote the book, I sat down and I thought really hard about what I know about plants and what gives me joy to think about them and why, why I appear to, you know, kind of look outside and see things differently than, than folks who have walked another path than folks who spent all that time in law school or, or, you know, had a different life. And I wrote all that stuff down and it's, it's a good book and I'm proud of it. But my challenges are different now. Now I want to communicate about something something more layered and and something with higher stakes. And um, uh, so my next book is on global change. And it's, it's, uh, (laughs) it's a book that really talks to people about where this came from and, and um, talks about the last 50 years, you know, that this isn't, this isn't a recent thing. This is the this is the harvest of, of what the last 50 years of industrialization have brought us. And then if you look deeply at your own life, you see, you know, you see echoes of how these things happened. 
uh, you know, you can see these things in your own life. You know, when my mom went back to nursing school and went back to work, you know, it was me and my dad eating, and we ate a lot more, you know, TV dinners and packaged foods and stuff like that. Um, and that was our thing together on Wednesday nights or whatever. But that was part of a much larger phenomenon in that when a lot of women left the home and went to work, um, what became a staple in the kitchen changed a lot. Mm. And um, folks stopped baking bread and, and, and doing, you know, things from ingredients, and they bought more packaged food. Well, that in turn... Um, it, it, it tweaked the the meat industry was born. Um, corn production went up like crazy. Yield production went up like crazy. Um, there was a need for 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 stuff that would keep right mm. um, shelf life. Yeah, exactly. And now we have you know, and that we're shortening process, our own shelf life in the press. <laughs> well, and that process has accelerated madly. You know, now you have a cupcake that can sit on a shelf. Um, for two years in a vending right. machine or something. I mean, I defy you. Go home and try to bake one. That'll last two years, right? right? And we turned all that corn into sugar, which keeps really well. And now mm. we're start. We've got so much sugar. We've turned it into ethanol, you know, to burn in our cars. So we grow crops, and then we extract compounds, and then we turn them back into fuel. And we've got these weird sort of Mobius strips associated with this compulsion to make more and use more and even <laughs> we even have to waste more you know we're growing so much food we've yeah. got to throw away 30% of it and yet we live in a world with um you know a, a good billion people that are living on much much too little we don't seem to be aware of the unintended consequences of a lot of what we do i i was reading that mcdonald's insistence that all their french fries be the same length yeah. has caused f more fertilization of potatoes to yeah. get the same size potato, yeah. which has then drifted into the waters in the nearby yeah. rivers and poisoned the water. Yeah. And you, th you go to buy some french fries, you don't think that you, the cost of the french fries is not just 50 cents or whatever it is, yeah. it's, it's clean water. Yeah, and the scale at which we do all these things has gone up, you know, dramatically, sort of a almost a log scale change. And that we've now got folks that are getting, um, you know, several meals a week from McDonald's. So it's not just, you know, we've got some people who want potatoes a certain way. It's that now there's a market for acres and acres and acres of these potatoes and the fertilizer that uses it, et cetera. So there's this kind of runaway effect associated with the last 50 years that for, we adopted all these new techniques and then instead of using them to sort of satiate ourselves and curb consumption we we just slammed down the accelerator and and now we use more and do more and use more and do more and and um we need to stop and ask ourselves if it's really making our lives better this is going to be the great question before humanity of the 21st century is how do you how do you exploit a resource and coexist with it at the same time because we are going to need to farm crops we're going to need to eat vegetables we got to eat something mm -hmm. and and that's just not going to go away now does that mean we have to 
blast every forest down to nothing so we can plant as much as possible and grow as much as possible and throw away as much as possible. You know, <laughs> it doesn't have to mean that. Where is the space where we both exploit and coexist in terms of natural resources? I think that is the big that's I think that's the big challenge for us as human beings in this next century. Well, I can't wait to read your next book because it's I know it's going to be. It's the story of how we got here, and it's a really hopeful story about what we do now. You know, if we had the tools and the wherewithal to make these problems, then we have the tools and the wherewithal to solve them. I know that sounds naive, but I really believe it. I really do. And um, I, I can't wait to see the ways in which we try. I know there's no guarantees, but I know a lot of people that are ready, willing, and able to try, and, and it's a wonderful thing. This whole conversation has prompted a question that I hope it's not too personal. It's, I understand, in fact, I was vegan for, for a few years. I, I really understand the urge not to eat animal meat. You've made me so aware of what the plant is going through. <laughs> yeah, right. Now do I have to give up vegetables? What am I going to eat? Rocks. Right. Those, those, those nuts with, with the opal in them. What's left? <laughs> right. So Do you, this do you is, find yeah. it hard to eat plants? That's the personal <laughs> part. Yeah, people are always dis- – people are – when people meet me, they're disappointed in two things. One is that I'm not taller. So <laughs> <laughs> apparently I write like a tall person. <laughs> That's funny. And the other is that I don't love plants more unconditionally when I, than I do. And, and I always want to say, you know, if you've had as many plants seriously mess with your life as I have, you would develop a complicated what, love Name one time when a plant messed with your life. That sounds interesting. Right. So we grow a lot of Arabidopsis, which is a little, um, it's a little kind of joe plant that a lot of scientists work on. It's, what it, is it? It's in the mustard family. So how can that hurt you? No, no, no. It's just that you grow them and you want to do something with them and they all die. You know, they they don't grow or, or you know, the lights go out and there's a power outage and they all die. You know, and it's like uh, – or, or they don't – they just – the experiment just doesn't work for some unknown reason. Also, the frustration messes with your life. Well, and sometimes you really can seem like they're doing it just to <laughs> because <laughs> wait a minute yeah 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 wait okay. a minute <laughs> okay you know you don't do this for decades without developing some issues right <laughs> but and plant experiments are really intense right because you you plant these things you you have a hundred of them so it takes you three hours just to water them all twice a day and you know you have to do it before sun comes up and and by the time they're four weeks old and you're going to harvest them and analyze them for the results by the time they're four weeks old you, you know you're on the verge of exhaustion you're sleeping in the field in your sleeping bag and it feels pretty good to cut these things <laughs> off <laughs> after, after they flat out controlled you know your waking hours for the last bit so it's it's you know you don't you don't just learn about the plants you learn about yourself when you do right. these things well you have that wonderful epilogue where you kind of cut through what what you just described yeah and you encourage us to get to know a tree yeah and that and you reminded me of my wife Arlene who loves plants so much. She knows she knows the names of so many flowers and I don't know those names. So I try to top her. We'll be walking in a garden <laughs> and I'll say, 
look at that wonderful hydrofloxia. <laughs> you know, I make it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I can't, I can't top her. But you know, she has, those, she loves plants so much. Those those names only exist for a reason because somebody made them up. Well, to, to, to <laughs> just be, like you just did, just like I Somebody did, right? Just yeah, yeah. But that I, thing I can't up. remember which one I called the hydrofloxia. That's the only problem. <laughs> but she has turned one of our rooms into a kind of a hot house, and she's yeah. growing a fig tree yeah. in yeah. in the room. Yeah. And she drove a hundred miles a couple of days Aww. ago just to water it. Oh, well, and I always tell people, you know, that's the real reason to study science. Is it's not, it's not. Do you remember Tang? Tang. Tang, you know. Tang, the wonderful, one of the only things we got out of the space program. There you go. There you go. They put put people on the moon in order to make, you know, Tang was the big payoff. All those people that studied physics all their lives and sacrificed and all the engineers and all the people that risked their lives. What was in it? Well, Tang, a flux of Floria. (laughs) 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 But, But, you know, we don't. In some ways, you know, that's that's not good enough. We do these things because because it feels good and because it makes us look at the world differently. And, and I also firmly believe that the more you know about the world, the more you feel like you're part of it. And that's why we should teach science. That's why we should share it is because there's there's not a lot else that does that. You know, I've, and I've seen it. Uh, you know, you teach somebody 10 different trees and they walk down the street differently. Because mm. they know the name of this one and that one and this one. It, it gets and us back to that earliest thing we talked about, about standing in the cornfield and yeah. noticing the sound of corn growing. Yeah. And you've spent a whole life doing that. Yeah. And, and there's something about that that's it's good for the soul and it's good for your self-esteem. And, and, and it feels good. You know, kids love that stuff. Mm. You know, you can't start too early with that. And I did a lot of that sort of thing with my dad. Um, so... So if there's one thing I know how to do, it's to tell those kinds of stories. Well, you sure tell them great. I think we're sort of out of time for our conversation, but we end these conversations with seven questions. Are you game for that? You bet. What do you wish you really understood? Um, how to cut somebody open. <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to hear a second <laughs> sentence on that one. I always Would wanted... this be like your old advisor in graduate no. school? <laughs> no, no, no. What, what do you mean how to cut somebody open? Well, I wanted for a long time. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a surgeon. Oh, and oh I see. I, um, you know, graduate school in science is, you know, you get paid a little bit, and and medical school costs a lot. So, so I went the science route. But I always had this fascination with, and I'm and I'm good, you know, I'm good with my hands. I can be decisive under pressure and all this stuff. So I thought I might have a chance at, at being a decent surgeon. But I just love the idea of of being able to cut somebody open and then sew them up again, and <laughs> and it and it and somehow they walk away from it. I just there there must be. I mean, and it must be really matter a lot how you do it, right? You got to yeah, do it I bet right. It does. Yeah, right. And so I just, I'm just enamored with like the tools that you would have at your disposal and the techniques that you would use and the help that you would have. And it just seems like the ultimate experiment to me, oh, maybe. I, I love somehow. that answer. So that's okay. my that's my honest answer. Number it's not two. very. It's a little twisted. But what do you wish other people understood about you? Me. Um, that there's nothing special about me, really. I, I mean, 
the people always, you know, they talk about what 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 is your best argument for encouraging people to be scientists? And I always think, well, obviously, it's the fact that I can do it. I mean, honestly, if I can do, I really honestly feel like if I can do this, anybody can do it. So let's do it. Okay. Number three, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Wow. I get strange questions every day. Um, um, people ask me why I didn't marry Bill, like, a few times a day. I get that. Your, and it, your co-worker yeah, in the lab was yeah, you, you said book. is your best friend. Yeah, yeah. in the book. And, I, I, I and why think is it, that a strange question? Because, because you're never, with him all day, every day. It never occurred to either one of us in all these years. It just never went through our mind. For whatever reason, I don't, you know, I don't care if you think that's weird or bad or neat or whatever. But, you know, we just, there is a place in the world for men and women to live as brother and sister. Mm-hmm. And, um... You don't, we don't find it enough. And it's one thing I am so, so very grateful I have had in my life. Okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, wow. Um, Don't go into academia. Um, I deal with a lot of compulsive talkers. I generally just think, I use the time to think about other things. (laughs) That's right. You stay in there, but you don't listen. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, you can multitask. You know, you you get, especially if they're telling you something they've told you before. It's actually a nice little me time you can take and think about what you need to buy at the store. You know, how about this? We've talked about your empathy with plants (laughs) and how you encourage us to have some. So, in in the context of empathy being yeah. an understanding of the other person's point of view, yeah. is there anyone you just can't feel empathy for? Um, a person? Yeah. Or a type of person? I don't know that many people. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> that's been one of the funny things about this book is people will ask me to give talks. And I, and I always want to be like, did you miss the part in the book where it was just me and and a couple people in a closed room for like 25 years like what <laughs> i'm happy like that i don't i'm not a gregarious person i mean i love to talk about i love to share but i'm not particularly so do you find gregarious. it generally easy to consider the point of view of another person or does it is it easier for you to think about a plant's point of view Oh, definitely plants are much easier to figure out. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> These are some of the most interesting answers that I've heard to these questions. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> okay. Okay. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? Bad news? Yeah, bad news. Um uh in person, absolutely. I'm 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 very you know how some people are conflict averse. Mm. I'm uh, uh, conflict philic. <laughs> I don't know. But um, I often think, yeah, I got that from my mother. You know, she's she's a tough, a tough um, piece of woman. And conflict is sometimes necessary and it clears the air and it moves you on to the next important thing. Okay, last question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Um, being overloaded with tasks that 
don't allow me to communicate with the people I love. I mean, that's that's a, the tragedy of of you know success is that if you don't if you don't watch it, all of a sudden you're interacting with all these people instead of the people you love. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's 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 what I fear is is that I'll lose. You know, there's nothing sweeter than somebody who who knew you from kindergarten, <laughs> and um, I just it doesn't matter if I miss all the seminars and speaking engagements in the world. I refuse to give those up. Well, it may be hard to take, but I bet you've made millions of friends that you didn't know were going to be friends. People who feel about you that they know something about you in an intimate, personal way, because your writing is so invitational to that stance and I, yeah. I, I I hope it's not a burden for you because a lot is, of people will I feel know, they know you. I know those people wouldn't like me nearly as much if they actually knew me. So I sort of feel well, like first I've of all, missed... you're not tall enough. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. But I but I love people. You know, I hear I get so many letters about the book and each one is a joy to receive. Oh, and great. such a gift to hear that. It meant something to somebody. And so that has has opened me up to other people in in ways that have I never expected and have been such a joy. Well, thanks so much for being here today. I really had a good time talking with you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Hope Jaron is an enormously talented science communicator. She has a beautiful way of explaining her science without using words like stable isotope biogeochemistry, which is what her lab at the University of Oslo specializes in researching. She's confident with her language, and she's comfortable with who she is. And this shows in the quality of her writing as well as in her research. Hope is the author of the best-selling book Lab Girl, which is published by Penguin Random House and is available at most retailers and online. Hope is also an advocate for removing the stereotypes surrounding women and girls in the STEM fields. And she's written compellingly about the sexual harassment of women in science. We were so taken with Hope's thinking on this that we're going to dedicate a whole episode to that topic in Season 5. So stay tuned for more from Hope and other leading female scientists about this very important issue. To find out more about Hope and her lab at the University of Oslo, please visit jarenlab.com. That's Jaren, J-A-H-R-E-N. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Adam Driver, the brilliant young actor taking the worlds of television, film, and theater by storm. His world changed in 2001 when he was just 18. You came to acting after a life in the Marines. Yeah. yeah. You joined the Marines because of 9-11. It was 9-11 and also that I, you know, know, felt this sense of, like most people I think are my age at that time, wanted to do something and get involved, but also like there wasn't a lot of opportunities where I was in Indiana. You know, being an actor, I was interested in it, but it didn't seem like a realistic thing that I could actually do Mm. at the time. So it was a it was a collection of things, but that was the initial push was nine eleven. Adam, I can't wait to talk to you on the show. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> we actually already recorded the show, <laughs> we, we, so we don't have to wait too long. We did. So the the part where I was supposed to vamp and say hello, uh, I I screwed up. So this is going to go great. <laughs> Get ready for an hour of pain. <laughs> Me and my pal Adam Driver. Next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these podcasts, you can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.